Thank you for your welcome. May grace, mercy and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. In Romans chapter 11, having given a very detailed explanation of the purposes of God, the Apostle ends with this great doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counsellor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory for ever. Amen. Now we'll turn for our reading to the prophecy of Hosea. God willing, we're going to spend the day in this prophecy, and this morning I want to look with you at the first three chapters, and we'll read from chapter 1, and then we'll read from chapter 2, from verse 14. Hosea chapter 1, and verse 1. Let us hear the word of God. word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. For the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblain, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu, and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I will broke Break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, Call her name Lo-Huhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. Now when she had weaned Lohrahamah, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, Call his name Loami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass, in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Now we'll resume the reading in chapter 2 and verse 14. In the first 14 verses of this chapter, we have an account of the unfaithfulness of Israel. 
And then we have, have this, these promises of mercy. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor is a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband, and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine and with oil. They shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth. And I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, You are my people. And they shall say, You are my God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word and we trust that he will bless it to us. Please turn with me again to the prophecy of Hosea, to chapter 1. We're beginning this chapter, but as I mentioned earlier, I want to look with you at the first three chapters, just to cover them as an overview, not to look at every detail. And we'll take as our text to guide our thoughts this morning, words in chapter 1 and verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. Now 800 years before the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Old Testament people had little access to his written word. The five books of Moses were in existence, but they were hidden away in the temple in Jerusalem. And King Josiah's Reformation, the time in the history of Israel when the word of God was restored, to its rightful place in the life of the nation was still around a hundred years away, far into the future. And the apparent absence of God's word was also connected with the decline of the prophetic movement in Israel. Elijah's heroic ministry had ended several generations ago. And apart from his immediate successor, Elisha, the remaining Israelite prophets, were ignorant and corrupt. They were not true prophets of the living God. They were false prophets. They spoke 
their own thoughts instead of bringing the word of God. And yet at this dark time, the Lord raised up a new generation of faithful prophets. In the southern kingdom of Judah, Micah and Isaiah appeared with a message from the Lord. And in the northern kingdom of Israel, Hosea and Amos proclaim the word of God. And we're told at the beginning of this prophecy, Hosea chapter 1 and verse 1, that the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Since Hosea was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel, we might have expected the king of Israel to be mentioned first. But the order in the text is deliberate. The kings of Judah are listed first because they were the only rightful heirs to the throne. Indeed, the existence of two separate kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south, itself demonstrated that God's Old Testament people had departed from him and that they had succumbed to idolatry. You remember perhaps how it happened after the reign of Solomon, his son Rehoboam came to the throne and and Jeroboam the son of Nebat rebelled against him and the kingdom was divided and it wasn't just a political division, the northern kingdom quickly turned away from the Lord and Jeroboam established alternative centres of worship away from Jerusalem and the people began to turn to Canaanite idols and to turn from the Lord. And Jeroboam is usually described in scripture as the one who made Israel to sin. Exactly because of of this division of, of the people and the establishment of this alternative center of worship and the spiritual apostasy that resulted and the widespread acceptance of pagan idolatry. In 2 Kings chapter 14, we're told that Jeroboam, the son of Joash, did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And yet we're also told that the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. And so this was actually a time of outward prosperity. The people were wealthy, they were successful. Jeroboam recovered several cities and a large area of land from the enemies of Israel, territory that had previously been taken from them. And the wealth of the nation increased during his reign. And when Hosea appeared, it must have surprised the people that God was so displeased with them. It seemed that everything was going well, that they had everything that they desired and that God was blessing them. But they were in a dire spiritual condition because they had forsaken the Lord and they had broken his covenant. And the message of this book, Hosea, this prophecy, reflects the perspective on Israel's history that we find in the books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. Before they took possession 
of the land of Canaan, the Lord reminded his people that he had delivered them from slavery in Egypt and that he'd led them through the wilderness. And according to Deuteronomy chapter 4, he promised the Israelites that if they obeyed his voice, they would be able to remain in the land and they would experience his blessing. But if they provoked him to anger, they would be expelled from the land and they would be scattered among the nations. And then he also promised that even if this happened, even if they were scattered, even if they experienced his judgment, if they returned to him and if they sought him with all their hearts, he would remember his covenant and he would pardon their sins and he would restore them to the land. And that's the underlying message of this prophecy of Hosea. Around two-thirds of the prophecy is illustrative and historical. It presents God's evidence against his people, proving that they had broken his covenant, that they disobeyed him, and that they turned their back on him, that they'd done that which was evil. And then around a quarter of the prophecy invokes the curses of the covenant, all the terrible things that would come upon the people because they had departed from the Lord. And it predicts sorrow and destruction. But then the remainder of the prophecy relates to the promises of God. And here in these opening chapters, a, a promise of restoration is given to the people who would return to the Lord. And that's what we have in the words that we read at the beginning, verse 10. The number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Well, I say all those things by way of introduction. and We'll turn now to the beginning of chapter 1. And we'll see that this prophecy begins with an unlikely marriage. God said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So Hosea is told to go and marry a dishonourable woman, a woman who will be unfaithful. Some commentators, John Calvin, for example, have been so shocked by the idea that Hosea was given this instruction, this commandment, that a man of God could be called to marry a dishonorable woman, they have refused to accept that it describes a literal historical event. And yet the physical enactment of a prophetic word was a common occurrence in ancient Israel. You may remember that Samuel's garment was torn in two to represent the division of the kingdom of Israel into two separate kingdoms. And then on another occasion, Jeremiah was instructed to break a clay jar in the valley of Hinnom to represent the destruction of Judah. And then on another occasion, Ezekiel was told to shave his head and his hair his beard and to divide his hair into three to represent the desolation of Jerusalem. They were acting out these prophecies visually, showing what God 
was saying to his people through his word. And Hosea's marriage followed this prophetic pattern. And yet this incident in his, in his life required him to identify with his message in a way that was far more personal, far more intimate than Samuel and Jeremiah and other prophets did when they performed their prophetic actions. And this was because Hosea was called to represent the heart of God's relationship with his Old Testament people, to portray the Lord's unchangeable covenant love. Crucially, the Lord did not specify exactly which woman Hosea was to marry. He said, go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, but he doesn't name any particular woman. Hosea chose his wife. He went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and this was his choice, his, his personal choice. He chose to marry Gomer. He was personally involved in his marriage. When Jeremiah went into the valley of Hinnom to break the clay jar, he was, he was simply acting out his message in a moment. This action had no lasting impact on him. It did not touch him personally. But that's not so with Hosea. He married Gomer because he loved her. And this should remind us that God's redeeming grace always flows out of his sovereign electing love. He doesn't show favour to his people because of anything that we are in ourselves or on the basis of what we have to offer him. He loves us because he would love us. And we can't go back any further than that. We can't penetrate this any deeper. He loves because he loves. And remarkably, he draws us to himself knowing that we will prove to be unfaithful. Now we don't need to necessarily conclude that Gomer was a practicing prostitute when Hosea went to marry her, although we do believe, or many Christians believe, that these verses describe a historical incident. She's primarily called a wife of harlotry because she came from the land of Israel, from a nation that had committed spiritual adultery by departing from the Lord. And so although this, this may indeed represent a historical incident, this prophecy must also be interpreted figuratively within the context of Old Testament history. If we go back towards the beginning of Old Testament history, we might remember that God made promises to Abraham when he first appeared to him. And his name was Abraham. He promised to make him a great nation, to bless him, to make his name great, to use him to bless all the families of the earth. The whole earth would be blessed through this one man and his descendants. And then when he was 99 years old, God spoke to him again and he said, I will make you exceeding fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And later on, when God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his son, and Abraham obeyed, 
the Lord repeated these promises. He said, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And you'll notice if you read those passages, these verses, God's promises to Abraham, that the words, I will, appear no less than 12 times. I will. I will. I will. I will bless you. I will make you great. Through your descendants, I will cause all the families of the earth to be blessed. I will. And then when the Israelites, later on, gathered at Mount Sinai, after they'd been brought out of the land of Egypt by the hand of God, and they were about to receive his law, Moses read the book of the covenant in the presence of his people, and they made their own binding commitment. Moses read the book, and the whole congregation said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. God says, I will. And the people say, we will. You know that those are the words we hear in a marriage ceremony, aren't they? You go and in the congregation as, as the man and the woman are standing next to each other and they make their vows. I will, they say one to another. You see, this exchange of vows sealed the marriage relationship between God and his Old Testament people. He said, I will, and they said, we will. And when the children of Israel were unfaithful to the Lord, they broke their marriage vow, and their sin made them guilty of spiritual adultery. Well, the next part of the narrative here in chapter 1 concerns the children that Gomer bore after her marriage to Hosea. And we're told in verse 3 that first she conceived and bore him a son. And this son was named Jezreel. The name Jezreel means God scatters or God sows. And furthermore, Jezreel was a place of bloodshed and destruction. It was the place where Naboth was murdered because he would not give his vineyard to King Ahab. He stood his ground and Ahab cruelly murdered him because of his faithfulness. And later on it was the place where a man named Jehu violently slaughtered the whole house of Ahab. What a name to give to your son. It would be like calling your son Auschwitz or Hiroshima. You think of places where there's been great bloodshed, great calamity. And this, this young boy is given this name, Jezreel. And the connection is established by some words of explanation in the text. Call his name Jezreel. For in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring to an end the kingdom of the house of Israel. God warned the Israelites that he would avenge them for the blood that had been shed in Jezreel by destroying the whole nation. He would bring the kingdom to nothing. And then we're told that after this, 
Gomer gave birth to a daughter. And this daughter is named Lohuhamah, which means no mercy. What a name to give to a young child. No mercy. Actually, Ruhamah is the Hebrew word for a mother's womb. Or it comes from the same root at least. And so this name signifies that there would be no parental care, no nurture, no kindness, no love for this child. Lohuhamah, no mercy. As Gomer gave birth to this daughter, God declared through Hosea that he would withdraw his tender mercies from the house of Israel. He would no longer care for them in a way that a mother cares for her young. They would be despised. They would be unloved. And then finally, Gomer gave birth to another son and he's given the name Lo-Ami. And his name carried the bitterest message for Lo-Ami means not my people. Not my people. God had rejected the kingdom of Israel. When God entered into a covenant with his Old Testament people, he declared that he would be their God and that they would be his people. But now he says, because they have broken my covenant, they are not my people. His promise is reversed. Hosea is called to proclaim this terrible news that God has has decided to reject the kingdom of Israel, they would be cast off. As expected, Gomer proved to be unfaithful to her husband, and we begin to see this in chapter 2 in the account at the beginning of the chapter. Verse 2, bring charges against your mother. Bring charges, for she is not my wife. Nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries between her breasts. And then the account begins to describe how she pursued other lovers. How she even proclaimed that the benefit she had received from her husband had come from her adulterous companions. Verse 5, for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. All these good things, she says, they didn't come from my husband. They came from some other man. How heartbreaking that must have been for Hosea. And then we see in the text that there is... On the part of Gomer, a show of repentance. She seems to regret her unfaithfulness. Like the prodigal son in Christ's parable. Gomer soon realises that her sinful lifestyle will not deliver lasting satisfaction. And so she says, verse 7, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. Because she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Her lovers had deserted her, they'd left her with nothing. 
And so in her desperation, she resolves to return to her husband. But you see, this this change of heart was not real, it was not deep, and it was insufficient to accomplish reconciliation. The, The offense remained. And as this chapter continues, it becomes increasingly clear that Hosea and Gomer, they faded into the background. What these verses are describing is God speaking to his people Israel about their unfaithfulness. Israel had committed spiritual adultery by pursuing vain idols. And if the people did not repent... God would act in judgment towards them. He would no longer show mercy. And their shallow shows of repentance would never appease him. They would never turn away his wrath. I remember that there were many occasions in Old Testament history when the people of Israel did repent of their wickedness and at least outwardly returned to the Lord. Psalm 78, for instance, contains a lengthy record of how the children of Israel, going through the wilderness, turned to the Lord and he showed favor to them. And then they began to slip again into their sinful ways and depart from him. And he showed mercy to them and he brought them back. They repented. He relented. But then... The same cycle continued and they began to depart from him again. Over and over again, this this cycle of turning to the Lord and then turning away. Of being restored and then backsliding again. They soon forgot the Lord, we're told. And they began to murmur against him. That's the deceitfulness of the human heart, isn't it? And we may deceive ourselves by making outward shows of of repentance. Making out that we've, we've turned to the Lord when really our hearts are still far from him. So I ask you now, have you truly sought God's pardoning mercy? Have you come to him for life and forgiveness? Have you repented of your sin? Or have you merely made a show of repentance? I would show of religion. How was Goma restored to her husband? Well, in the next part of chapter 2, we find the prophet pleading with his wife. We see him taking the initiative and going out to her, going out of his way to, to draw her back to himself. Verse 14 Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will go out into the wilderness and speak comfortably to her. And here we have a picture of the preaching of the gospel. How does the Lord reach out to to guilty sinners, those who have departed from him, those who have rebelled, those who have broken his laws, those who have turned away, those who have been unfaithful. How does he reach out to us? Well, he pleads with us. 
He comes to speak to us. He gives us words of comfort and hope. He captures our hearts with the good news of the gospel. He draws us by his grace. He allures us with gospel promises. That word allure, it's a very old English word. It goes back to the time when, when people would go out to catch birds. How would they catch these birds of prey, these great birds? They would, they would throw out some meat, a small tasty morsel of meat. And then the bird would come to take the meat and then it would be ensnared. The meat would allure the bird. That's, that's the kind of idea we have here. God alluring his people, drawing, attracting us. In his mercy and in his goodness, with words of comfort, with words of hope. When Thomas Cranmer, the English reformer, composed the services in in the prayer book, and especially the the service for the Lord's Supper, he, he chose to use the word comfortable. The most important and poignant part of the communion service. In that liturgy there's a point in in the service when the congregation is called to confess their sins. And there's a prayer of confession. And when this, this prayer has been offered, the minister is then instructed to say, Hear what comfortable words. Our Saviour Christ says to those who truly turn to him. Come unto me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Words of comfort. Words of hope. God Drawing by his grace. Therefore I will go out into the wilderness and allure her and speak comfort to her. And then the story reaches its climax in Hosea chapter 3. The prophet receives a word from the Lord instructing him to go and retrieve his unfaithful wife. Who by this time has sold herself into slavery. The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. We can almost imagine the scene, Hosea walking through the slave market in the bustling town. His eyes scanning all the human flesh that is there on display, looking for his unfaithful wife. A face that he recognises and there he sees her and she hardly looks like the woman that he married. Her face is bruised, her clothes are torn. She hangs her head in shame. She's in a terrible condition, she's broken. But she's still the woman that he loves. And he redeems her. He buys her. 
for 15 shackles of silver and one and a half homers of barley. Less than the price of a common slave. And he brings her back. He redeems her not because he's a a foolish husband, not because he's willing simply to overlook her offences, not because he doesn't care about what she's done. The offence remains. But he redeems her because he loves her and because this is the only way that he can bring her back. He could have cast her off forever. And yet he would not break his promises. And so this is a beautiful picture of the redeeming love of God. And the sin that has separated us from him cannot simply be ignored. A price must be paid for the justice of God to be satisfied. But the joyful news of the gospel is that this price has been paid by the faithful husband. By the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are redeemed. Not with corruptible things like silver and gold. But with the precious blood. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this brings us to the promises of restoration. That are scattered throughout the first three chapters of this prophecy. And those promises don't negate the warnings of judgment that Hosea was commanded to declare to the unbelieving, the unrepentant nation, backsliding Israel, the sentence of God remained against those who would not repent. But these promises were given to declare that a new work of grace would flow out of the Lord's rejection. Of the kingdom of Israel. He would no longer have mercy on the rebellious nation. He would utterly cast them away. The backsliding nation would be cast off by him. The rebellious house of Israel would be rejected. But the Lord would have mercy on the house of Judah. And he would save them by his almighty power. The backsliding nation would no longer be regarded as his people. And yet the number of the children of Israel would be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Now notice that one of these promises is addressed to Judah, the southern kingdom, and the other is addressed to Israel, the northern kingdom. You see, God declared through Hosea that although he would continue to reject the rebellious nation, he would keep his covenant promises, and he would do this by drawing out of these rebellious kingdoms of Israel and Judah a remnant, a people who would know him, who would serve him, who would love him, who would follow him, who would fear him, who would obey him. Who will be faithful to him. The living God is not like the promiscuous idols that the Canaanites worshipped. He doesn't disregard his moral perfections, his justice, his righteousness. To offer cheapened grace to those who refuse to forsake their sin. 
but he does pay the price of redemption to purchase the people for himself, does everything that is necessary to secure their salvation. The ultimate meaning of these promises is disclosed at the end of Hosea chapter 2, verse 21. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine and with oil. They shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth. And I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. And I want you to notice that here in this promise in verse 23, the names of Gomer's children are are repeated. They appear again. But they're reversed in their meaning. There's a name Jezreel, which means that God scatters, or God sows. And within the context of Hosea's message of judgment, this meant that God would disperse his people. They would be scattered across the earth. They would be sent into exile. They would be punished. The kingdom would come to nothing. That's the word of judgment. Jezreel. This name which speaks of, of bloodshed and destruction. And yet within the context of this promise, this name is, is given a new meaning. It still means God scatters. Or God sows. But it means that God would cause his faithful people to grow. They wouldn't be scattered in the sense of of ceasing to exist, ceasing to function as a nation. They would be scattered in the sense that they would grow and fill the earth. That God would give them the increase. He would make them fruitful. They would multiply. Just as he had promised to Abraham that he would make his descendants more numerous than the sand on the seashore. God scatters. That's the judgment. God sows. That's the promise. And then Lohuhama means no mercy. But here the promise is reversed. I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. You see, the people who had not obtained mercy before, people who were cut off from God, people who had no access to his word, people who had never received his grace, he would show mercy to them. God would turn this curse into a blessing in the aftermath of his rejection of Israel. God would enter into a new covenant with a faithful remnant of his people. And then Loami, which means not my people. Again, this is turned around. I will say to those who were not my people, those who were far off, those nations of the earth that never knew me, I will say to them, you are my people. And they shall say, 
you are my God. If we turn to the New Testament, into Romans chapter 9, we find there how the Apostle Paul explains how this promise has been fulfilled. He tells us that when God did eventually cast off the Old Testament kingdom of Israel, he extended his grace to a remnant according to the election of grace, to people from every tribe and kingdom and nation of the earth. And beyond this, even to ourselves here, for if we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are the recipients of this promise. There was a time when we were far off from God. We were not a people, but now we are the people of God. We had not received his mercy. But now he has shown such great mercy towards us. We've received the redeeming grace of God and the salvation that is only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the New Testament church, this promise is fulfilled as great number of people, both Jew and Gentile, from every tribe and tongue of nation are are gathered, the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. This is God's grace. This is God's mercy. Have you received this grace? Have you put your trust in this great God who works salvation for his people? Because even today he invites us, whoever we are, whatever we have done, whatever condition we find ourselves in, to come to him and to receive his mercy and to be welcomed into his family so that we who were once not a people are now the people of God. Amen. May God bless his word to us.